This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We have seen the concern about the pharmaceutical industry grow significantly in the last several years. The Martin Shkreli case, the EpiPen pricing issue, and more. And it feels like now more than ever that the pharma industry has greater control. But what is being done to rein in this multi-billion dollar industry? A new book looks at that issue as well as other things. It is titled Drug Wars, How Big Pharma Raises Prices and Keeps Generics Off the Market. Professor Robin Feldman is director of the Institute for Innovation Law at the University of California at Hastings, and she is the co-author of this book with uh, Evan Frondorf, and it's a pleasure to have Robin back on the show. Robin, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, The investment in drugs is so significant, but do most pharma companies right now, how, how well off are they making out on a lot of these drugs at this point? Well, um... Life is good in the pharmaceutical industry these days. Uh, not necessarily so good for, for consumers and for society, but pharmaceutical industry is uh, doing very well. So the, the profits um, in the pharmaceutical industry are largely coming from rise, raises in prices. So, for example, 80% of the growth of profits in the 20 largest drug companies has resulted from price increases, not new drugs, just just raising prices. The brunt of that pain is felt by U.S. citizens because our the drugs that we buy here are much more expensive than, expensive than the prices elsewhere. So, for example, a drug that costs less than $400 a year in some countries costs $300,000 a year here. You asked me about the, um, about the, the profit structure and how the drug industry is, is doing. Let me give you one example from one drug company, AbbVie, in 2015. Mm-hmm. They projected a $17 billion revenue increase over the five years from that, by the year 2020. Only a quarter of that increase was projected to come from new products or increased sales. Most of that $17 billion would come from raising prices. That's staggering. (laughs) Those are staggering numbers. I I, I mean, when you think about what we've seen, and really just the publicized stuff, like the Martin Shkreli and the EpiPen case, it, it draws the attention of the consumer to wonder what the heck is going on with our government, with this industry in general right now, that we are not seeing more control over it. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the Martin Shkreli case and, and some of the ones that people have seen. The pharmaceutical industry would like to point to those and say, these are just, this is just a few bad apples. Bad boy Martin Shkreli, maybe it's Valley and a couple of others. But I have research that I released last week showing that it's not a few form of bad apples. It's, it's business as usual throughout the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a piece called May Your Drug Price Be Evergreen, and it is the first full study showing just how extensive this type of behavior is. So the study covered all drugs between 2005 and 2015 that were on the market in the United States. Mm-hmm. It tracked every time a company extended its protection cliff. So companies pile new protections onto each drugs over and over again, pushing out the point at which competition will enter and drive prices down. Um, So here are a couple of the key things I found. Rather than creating new medicines, pharmaceutical companies are recycling and repurposing old ones. 
So every year, at least 74% of the drugs associated with new patents were not new drugs coming on the market, but they were existing drugs. Right. In other words, we are lavishing these rewards not on um, exciting new innovation, but on tweaks to things that already exist. Uh, adding new patents and exclusivities to extend that protection cliff is particularly pronounced among blockbuster drugs. Of the roughly 100 best-selling drugs, almost 80% extended their protection cliff at least once, and, and half extended the protection cliff more. Uh, and we have um, uh, lots of examples of what I like to call serial offenders. Um, half of those I just mentioned added four or more protections, and, mm -hmm. and some added more than 20. Part of this is also uh, the fact that uh, we've heard stories about the uh, the industry wanting to speed up, if they could, the time that drugs are getting to market, uh, partly, I think, in, in reason so that they can expand the period of time that they have control over a particular drug before it would, quote unquote, go to a generic as well, correct? So the pharmaceutical industry is looking to expand its period of profits, both moving backwards and moving forward. I have no problem if the pharmaceutical industry can bring drugs to market more quickly, Right. but all good things must come to an end. Um, the patent system is designed so that after a period of time, competitors can enter and bring the price down. That's not happening. And it isn't just patents. There are more than 10 um, exclusivity rights that one can get at, through the FDA that are non-patent exclusivities for doing things like having orphan drug status or doing uh, tests in children. The tests don't have to be successful. You just have to do them. Each of these um, 10 different things can extend your period of exclusivity in the market um, by up to seven years. Well, and I think a lot of people don't even realize that there is an exclusivity uh, aspect to the industry right now. Part of what makes this industry so hard to control is that it is so complex. The games are extraordinarily difficult, and they don't lend themselves to, to nice sound bites. It makes it difficult for legislators, regulators, and the public to understand what's going on. I do think we are at a point in history in which the American public is asking for change, and that's critical. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. We're talking with Robin Feldman, who is one of the authors of the book Drug Wars, How Big Pharma Raises Prices and Keeps Generics Off of the Market. Your chance for uh, comments or questions about the pharma industry, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Just to kind of first get, get a, a little bit of a, a background on this, in terms of the time period that, that pharma has usually before a drug goes generic, how long is that? Patent runs for 20 years from the time that you file your patent application. In the pharmaceutical industry and in all industries, um, companies want to throw down a patent application as quickly as they possibly can to stake out their territory. 
Thus, um, you will see patents filed at a very early time in the drug development industry. Many of these patents and ideas are never developed. Mm -hmm. Either they don't work or they sit on a shelf. For those that are developed, it takes time to get to market. So I have seen studies, it's not my work, so I don't know if, I don't know if this is accurate, but I've seen studies suggesting that when a drug gets to market, the drug company has an average of 12 years of exclusivity protection. That's a long period of time. Right. Now, the drug company would like to say we, we've lost our, we, we don't have our full 20 years, and, and that is certainly, that's certainly true. But, but 12 years is nothing to sniff at for the types of monopoly pricing that we see. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. You also uh, spend a good bit of time in the book talking about this pay-for-delay uh, process. Can you explain what it is uh, for the listeners? Sure. So the Hatch-Waxman Act is the act that allows for rapid entry of generic drugs. The idea is to help a generic drug get ready to come on the market um, and be ready to go the minute the patent ends. This has been a very successful system for a long period of time, bringing many generics into the market and correspondingly bringing the price down. Studies show that when generics do enter the market, the first generic can bring the drug down by an average of 15 to 20 percent, mm -hmm. and multiple generics can eventually bring the price of the drug down 80 percent. But that assumes the drugs get to market. Um, so within this system, what we see is um, it, it allows a process in which a generic drug company can challenge the patent on the brand name drug. There are many patents out there that are quite weak and probably invalid. There are many patents out there that are valid, but drug companies will claim that they apply to their drug, and they don't. So this Hatch-Waxman Act includes an incentive for a generic company to do battle with the big guys. Right. And the, the system operates that if you successfully challenge the patent on a drug, then you, the first generic, get to be the only generic on the market for six months. It'll just be, it'll, it'll just be you and, of course, the, the big guy who is there. That's, in, that's intended to help clear out weak and um, uh, inappropriate patents. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the, the drug companies have taken this system and twisted it around. So through this process, they enter into what is known as pay-for-delay settlements. In other words, they pay that first generic to stay off of the market. So <laughs> the, there are the, so the branded drug stays on the market at a very high price. The generic gets paid a little of that monopoly rent to stay off the market. And when the generic comes to market, it still gets its six-month exclusivity. So it's a win-win for the branded drug. It's a win for the generic drug. Consumers and society lose. It, these things push out the horizon at which a drug, a generic drug, would enter the market. Which is a version of collusion, correct? It, yes. And uh, a few years ago, the Supreme Court opened the door to antitrust suits to challenge this behavior. 
and some lower courts have um, found the behavior to be inappropriate. However, these suits are costly, they're expensive, they are difficult to pursue, these antitrust suits, and drug companies are, are extraordinarily creative in their activity to protect these incredibly valuable monopolies. So the companies have developed extraordinarily complex deals that are, are difficult to tease out. Rather than having a direct payment to the generic company, the brand name drug may have all types of side deals that are entirely economically irrational. So for example, they may pay um, a generic an overvalued amount to do something um, that the generic has uh, no experience in and, and that one would never hire them to do, like being a dead middleman in the middle right. between uh, the, the manufacturer and, um, and the seller, or paying a generic company to market a drug when the generic company has no marketing experience and isn't a marketing company. So these are economically irrational deals, but they camouflage what is essentially pay for delay. And and it seems like that uh, at least right now, while we obviously heard quite a bit of uproar in the in the Shkreli case and the EpiPen case from uh, members of Congress, we you know what have we seen Congress do specifically to address a lot of these issues? And uh, is there a concern that that uh, going forward that they won't be able to or won't want to do enough? It will take extraordinarily strong political will to overcome the incentives to keep the system in place. Um, a huge amount of money is flowing here. It flows into profits. That creates um, strong incentives for the pharmaceutical industry to keep it the way it is. And that has translated into um, extraordinary lobbying dollars going to both parties from the pharmaceutical industry. If, if we are not careful, we're going to see that we are the nation of the people, by the people, and for the lobbyists. That's the <laughs> yeah. problem in Congress right now. And the other interesting piece to this is how uh, how vastly different uh, the industry is here in this country compared to what we see around the world in terms of the pricing of a lot of these drugs. One can look at it in very direct terms. U.S. consumers, U.S. Um, state, federal, and local governments are supporting and subsidizing drug pricing throughout the world. Our prices are magnitudes higher than the drugs for other countries. One could decide as a nation that we wish to do that. We have simply backed into it. 844-942-7866 is the number. We are talking with uh, Professor Robin Feldman at the University of California at Hastings. She is the uh, co-author of the book Drug Wars, uh, How Big Pharma Raises Prices and Keeps Generics Off the Markets. Your comments welcome, 844-942-7866. If you're not able to get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, and we can bring it up on the show that way, at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. When you look at the generic market in general right now, 
Uh, how solid is it and, and how profitable is it right now? Obviously not as profitable as obviously these big pharma companies, but it, it seems like it does well on its own. So for a long period of time, the generic market was doing reasonably well. Now we are seeing consolidation and we're seeing struggling among the generic companies. Um, these types of tactics have made it difficult for generics to gain a foothold in the market and to follow the business plan that was contemplated for generic entry. So we've seen struggling from the company um, Tiva uh, and, and general consolidation. There are a variety of techniques in addition to the ones I've described that make it difficult for a generic to get onto the market. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the brand name company may sell its own generic. These are called authorized generics. And and this is done to try to discourage the generic from coming on the market or to cut into the generic's profits when it, it gets there. Um, the brand name companies also negotiate certain types of deals that will give their own drug a more prominent place in terms of reimbursement. Um, that makes it difficult for a pharmacist to substitute the generic for the brand. It's difficult to describe these simply. The games are complex, but at the end of the day, it's the consumer that suffers, and the prices continue to skyrocket, again, in a way that's economically irrational. If we have a reasonably competitive system, you won't see this. But getting that reasonably competitive system seemingly is a very hard element to try and bring forth when you think about all of the factors that are involved here. Obviously, the drug companies, as you mentioned, the lobbying, the pricing issues, which have kind of been in place for, you know, for a long period of time, and the seemingly lack of, uh, of significant interest by Capitol Hill to be able to make changes on this. There are some fairly simple approaches that could make a big difference. One is what I call one and done. The notion is that a pharmaceutical company on a chemical formulation should get one period of exclusivity and no more. It could be their core patent. It could be a secondary patent. It could be um, one of the exclusivities. But when you get to market, you pick one period that you want, and that's it. And then you can't pile on lots of other extensions to this. That would be a reasonably simple approach to shutting down the behavior. The second approach is transparency. Deals like this thrive in dark corners, and a little sunshine goes a long way. If Congress or the states were able to promulgate regulations that would ask for um, simple openness about uh, what the different deals are, it would be much easier to shut them down. Um, the, the study that I published last week looked at 160,000 different data points that had to be painstakingly extracted from and pulled together from lots of information just to tease these games out. With public information, that could happen in the blink of an eye. Um, those are those are really key. And then the last issue I would I would suggest is what I call ruthless simplification. 
the system we have for approval of generic drugs is far too complex. Mm-hmm. Many of the fixes that Congress contemplates are very complex. Complexity breeds opportunity, and the, the drug industry is is adept at exploiting that um, complexity. A simpler system makes it much more difficult to play games like these. So would it would this would this come from people that are looking for innovation in this area? Where do you think this would come from? In terms of the actual proposals or the competition? Or the competition, more so. So I do think that the generic industry has the base to provide competition within the field. We need to change the surrounding incentive systems that allow people to um, compete and play the game. So I think we are primed to do this. We just have to make sure that the system doesn't incentivize people uh, away from competing. <laughs> and that's, I like to say, mm-hmm. I was going to say, and that that's unfortunately the way that it is pretty much set up and geared is to incentivize them. So you can't blame the drug companies for behaving in their own economic self-interest. If you want rats to run in a particular direction in a maze, you can't have the cheese located at the other end. Right. And right now, the cheese is poorly located. We're talking with, uh, we are talking with Robin Feldman of the University of California at Hastings. Uh, she is uh, the co-author of the book Drug Wars, How Big Pharma Raises Prices and Keeps Generics Off the Market. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, and just off of those last comments and, and seemingly looking at this, as we've done a variety of segments on the, the industry as well, it just feels like, to a degree, we are running in a circle here. <laughs> um, yes, but sometimes you have to run in a circle until you can find the exit. And I do believe we are at, we are at a point in history where it may be possible to find a way out of the problems that we have the key, however, is going to be popular sentiment. Um, we are a democracy, and, and even with extraordinary lobbying, Congress and state and local governments do respond if the, if the pressure is overwhelming. So it's up to listeners like yours, if they care about this, to try to push for the change that they would like to see. You know, I'd love to talk a little bit about, um, if we have time, about the recycling and repurposing of, of drugs that, that's happening. Sure. We got, about, I believe, we got about two minutes or so, if you'd like to uh, take that time. Sure, because I believe that's one of the next arguments that, that's going to, that's going to, to have to be um, considered. What you see happening with the repurposing of old drugs is um, what are called secondary patents. So... A company makes slight modifications to a drug's dosage or delivery mechanisms any number of times, getting patents on on, uh, this, that, and the other. These tweaks are enough to get you past the patent office, but here's the problem. They don't mean much in terms of benefits to patients. So we're lavishing expensive rewards, patents, and exclusivities on suboptimal behavior. The problem isn't just with secondary patents. We see the same problem with non-patent benefits granted at the FDA. Mm -hmm. Um, 
there was a recent FDA ruling that confirmed that you can get orphan drug status, that's seven more years of protection, without a plausible theory of superiority. In other words, your drug doesn't have to be any better, right. but we'll give you seven years of protection. And then the profitability off of that seven-year period of time is, is probably astronomical. It's extraordinary. The, these are these are these are incentives that are that are out of whack, and, yeah. and we need to focus on fixing them. Robin, it's a great book. Thank you very much for your time, and great uh, to have you back with us on the show. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Robin Feldman. The book is uh, Drug Wars: uh, How Big Pharma Raises Prices and Keeps Generics Off the Market. Uh, Robin is a director of the Institute of Innovation Law at the University of California at Hastings. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.